0: Uh, I recorded the last day of East Germany, the country that's dying. Never seen that before. A country that is about to vanish off the map and
1: and from history. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Michael is a military historian, author, researcher and illustrator. He began his career on the military magazine Battlefields Review as a writer and illustrator before working in the printed books department at the Imperial War Museum in London. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'm asking for a few quid or dollars a month to help keep us on the air. It's not much, perhaps a coffee or two a month, but you'll become the envy of your friends with the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster that comes free with your support. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. So back to today's episode. Michael has a beautifully illustrated notebook from his time in East Germany, which he has kindly allowed us to show some of his illustrations. So don't miss those in the show notes, which can be found as a link in your podcast app. I'm delighted to welcome Michael Patterson to our Cold War Conversation. Thank you for asking. One tea is the Scottish
0: way. So if you remember the shortbread, shortbread, Patterson's
1: shortbread, no relation of mine. Okay, we're talking about shortbread today. Uh, No, we're we're actually here at Imperial War Museum North on the 30th anniversary of the opening of the Berlin Wall. Welcome to Cold War Conversations, Mike. Thank you very much. So let, let's wind the clock back from today mm-hmm. and um, tell me what. Why were you in Berlin in September 1989? What brought you to Berlin?
0: Entirely, I was there by accident. I was visiting the lady who's now my wife. Um, I was visiting her parents who lived in Charlottenburg in the British sector, and we were able to visit. East Berlin, under very, very limited circumstances, if you're with a service family, you're unable to go simply as an ordinary tourist into East Berlin. You have to go on what was called a flag tour in a coach with a military presence. And uh, I was furious about this because, as a historian, I'm actually more interested in the old centre of Berlin than in the more modern suburbs and this simply meant that I wasn't able to visit the places I wanted to go to. We did manage to go once. And we spent a day there. And it was about a fortnight before the GDR was going to celebrate its 40th anniversary. So everywhere you looked with these big... Uh, post DDR40, German Democratic Republic, 40th anniversary. The very big uh, processional avenue they have there, which is called the Karl Marx Allee, was being set out. Soldiers were um, taping uh, a processional routes along this. And it was really going to be a big celebration. The trouble was that the country was already unraveling. During that summer, Berlin was in the news all the time because Hungary had opened its border into the West. East Germans were fleeing into the West through uh, other Iron Curtain countries. And this 40th anniversary was going to be a great big pretense, celebration of a country that actually was terminally ill. And when we saw this preparation going on. I remember thinking, what a shame we're not going to be here in in two weeks' time. I'd love to have come and seen the uh, event. Actually, it didn't work out like that anyway. Such was the lack of confidence the government had that they actually closed East Berlin to foreigners on that day. We wouldn't have been allowed to go there anyway. And the event itself, which I've seen often on, on, on screen since then, was very much the last hurrah. There was never going to be an official celebration in East Berlin again. And I think there is a fascination with this notion of a country that is dying, a whole society that's 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 on on the way to the dustbin of history. Now, with the process that went on throughout Eastern Europe. Over those months, that winter, 1989, it would have been very easy to go to the other countries, to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, those places. I didn't ever want to, because I felt that they would become more interesting places in the future as they discovered their identity and reestablished their traditions. This part of Germany was going to become less interesting. It was going to simply be swallowed by the West, absorbed by the West, I became very, very interested in seeing this country in its last months of existence. And each time we went there, it was like visiting a terminally ill friend. Each time you go, you notice that they look worse. And each time, it's a sadder experience. I will explain that East Germany was very proud of its achievements. It was the rump of German territory. They had, if you like, got all bits of territory that the West didn't want. They had no natural resources at all, apart from uh, turf, brown coal. And yet they had built a hugely successful economy. They had very famous writers, Bertolt Brecht is a good example. They had sporting achievements. They'd won a lot of Olympic medals. We since found out they cheated in a lot of these. But uh, they were very, very proud. They had good reason to be a smaller, poorer relation of West Germany, and yet for a communist country they'd been a fantastic success. And all of that identity and that achievement was being rubbished and downgraded and they were finding that no one cared about it after all. It was a deeply sad time to be there. I don't feel any sense as a Westerner that I was gloating over the demise of this regime. And I'll also make the point I didn't ever see it or experience it as a draconian regime. East Germany had had its fangs drawn by the time I went there. I didn't see Stasi agents. I was not spied on or photographed.
1: They might have been very good, Mike, at hiding. (laughs) Yes,
0: knowingly, anyway, knowingly. (laughs) But what I did see, for example, were the way in which the goods in the shops, nobody wanted to buy anything East German anymore, because, of course, they would go over to the West. And so mountains of unsold clothing and household goods that were at an absolute knockdown discount because nobody wanted them. And the same really went for everything about their country. Outside the Brandenburg Gate, a flea market came into existence almost overnight because East Germans, the thing they wanted most was hard currency. And the only thing they could give you in exchange for that was the paraphernalia of their lives, so people were selling medals, they were selling certificates, they were selling items of clothing. Anything with an East German symbol on it, they would try selling. And they would ask whatever money they felt they could get away with. So let's say the little GDR car decals that people put on their um, car bumpers, You might find somebody charging the equivalent of 25p for one of those, but the stall you just looked at, they were 15 pounds. There was no agreed price or value for things. People just sold whatever they had. And I am the person that came along and bought it all. Because I'd love to see your garage, Mike. (laughs) Well, I certainly have a very big corner of the attic that's full of all these things, and I don't regret it for a moment this is the history of tomorrow this 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 is certainly interesting and it may be valuable i don't know but it was very uh, w- obvious that you could really just buy the essence of a country buy all the outward. i brought home the entire uniform of one of the friedrich engels guard regiment soldiers and i know that that is now very rare and collectible so i Jolly well, I hope I can find it again, somewhere in the attic.
1: Yeah, (laughs) hopefully the moths haven't been at that, (laughs) (laughs) right?
0: I hope not, I hope not. Well, to give you an example, the type of helmet worn by uh, National People's Army soldiers was rarer than the version worn by German soldiers in World War II. It cost £165 to buy one of these East German helmets because they were very hard to obtain. Shortly after the 9th of November... The government disbanded the so-called working-class combat groups, and that meant that a million of these things were suddenly on the market. The value dropped to £16. Now, this was true of many things. East Germany had been, I think, a hard country to penetrate, and you simply weren't allowed to take any souvenirage out of there. And now suddenly all this stuff was in your face. You couldn't move without seeing it. I used to come home with carrier bags full of this and again i don't regret some people may think that's obsessive hobbyism or something but um i am very glad i have those uh relics of a, a now extinct country and a way of life that is forgotten the whole point about historians is they try to revive what is forgotten so that people can learn the lessons from the past and uh, I could just about outfit an East German village, I think, if if that state ever comes back into being.
1: Right, right. No, that, that's that that's really interesting. I mean, you, you did mention to me earlier about one of your specialities is around the Kaiserzeit mm. in in German history. And mm. uh, what are your views on the sort of Prussian style militarism of East Germany? Because that yeah. does appear to be a little bit of a contradiction against a, you know, the workers' and peasants' state. Yes, um, it absolutely
0: was. Uh, the most watched tourist attraction, the most popular tourist attraction in East uh, Berlin was the changing of the guard at a place called the Neue Wache, which was a former guardhouse, 19th century guardhouse. It became the monument to the victims of fascism and militarism. And the troops which guarded it, were dressed in what looks to the layman like a, an approximation of, of Third Reich uniform. They marched with the parade step, as the Kaiser's troops used to. They were deeply impressive. They used to change the guards every half hour, and I would always, always stop to watch it if I could. I think my record, was sort of 11 times in one day. It got to the stage where they wouldn't start until they saw me. <laughs> but it was very impressive. They were all chosen for being exactly the same height. They were extremely well drilled. And if you know about these things, as as I do, you really know that you're looking at uh, professionalism. It was like a corps of ballet. And I totally agree that there was an irony about this. There's a moment in the big changing of the guard uh, where they present arms to the victims of fascism and militarism. And I could never help thinking that those victims, would, if they could be here to see those today, would be a bit bemused because they look so exactly like the fascists themselves. Somehow the East German government had squared that circle. They had adopted in a way that the West German Bundeswehr did not, a number of the old Prussian traditions such as the goose step and the playing of these wonderful old marches, the Yorkshire March, named after uh, General York von Vartenberg, rather than the place in England. And uh, the, the Kohlberg March, these thing um, It really was evident, if you're a historian like me, that um, you were watching the descendants, if you like, of uh, Frederick the Great's soldiers. Now, the point is that they had copied this drill from the Soviet army, Therefore, they were able to say, oh, well, this isn't really Prussian at all. We're doing what the Russians do. And the Russians had adopted it from Prussia in the first place. So the whole thing becomes a little confusing. But um, they saw no irony at all in the fact that they looked rather like Hitler's soldiers. Uh, interestingly, if... Uh, I remember reading somewhere, a chap wearing, a, I think, a camouflage um, coat, was in East Berlin as a tourist and was stopped by the police who said to him, why are you dressed like a fascist and a militarist? And when he looked at their uniforms, he thought, talk about the pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> um, it was something rather strange, but the East Germans loved this spectacle. You can see it still on YouTube and you'll see that the crowds are five, six deep and Largely, they are East Germans, tourists from other parts of East Germany or, or, or Berliners. Um, they were very proud of it. A small country that no one really takes seriously. I don't think Britain recognized East Germany as a sovereign nation until something like 1973. And they were so proud of the things they'd achieved. And I think this was one of them, that they had this army that... Originally had been tolerated by the Soviet Union, which they built up, given a reputation for a certain efficiency. And here you could see it on parade and didn't, didn't it look splendid? I will say it was never as impressive as seeing the, the troops at Lenin's tomb. It wasn't, wasn't as good as that, but it was certainly a, a splendid spectacle. And it fitted so well because the, building which they guarded had been built um, as a, a guardhouse for the Prussian army, for the old kings of Prussia, um, people goose-stepping and presenting was precisely what that setting was designed for, and it looked very, very splendid.
1: Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, have you seen the YouTube video of the last Neuer Wacher parade?
0: Well, I have, but I was at
1: it, so I remember it. Personally as well. Well, we'd love to hear your recollections of that.
0: Well, it was a dreadful occasion. It was the eve of unification in October 1919. It was dark by the time they dismounted, which was at five o'clock in the evening. And the troops had already... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia. And I support Cold War conversations
1: because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. Get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Being forbidden to march with the Shred, the
0: goose step, they'd already had stopped doing that, so they lost a lot of the swagger that they used to have. And what happened was that they would always, at the changing of the guard, a door would open in the side of the history museum next door. Out would come a soldier who would hold up the traffic, and then the relieving guard, the new guard, would come out in single file, and they'd form up with a sergeant in the middle. And they would slow goose step up to the monument, and they'd change over. Uh, it's a thing I cannot describe. If you can see it, you'll find that it was a, 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 a very well organized ceremony very slick and there was a huge crowd absolutely enormous crowd of people who'd never bothered to come and see this before and you'd hear all the folk in that crowd saying this is the last time and i suppose we ought to come and see it there were a great many pests from the the, the world's media kind of photographers who bring step ladder with them so they can climb they got their lights shining on it they were Very rudely pushing, shoving people out of the way to get the the, the decent position to see it, and nobody was protecting the soldiers themselves, who were simply overwhelmed by the people around them standing very close. They obviously need room to 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 march and to to do what they do. And um, there were people, there were protesters. Uh, I remember somebody with a placard which said, "My family was gassed in Auschwitz," and I couldn't I couldn't read the rest of it, so I don't know what the point this uh, poor gentleman was making but um, the whole thing was a horrible circus of flash bulbs and shouting pushing and people simply gawping because this spectacle would never be seen again Um, those of us who had seen it very often uh, preferred to have those memories of it Um, the last one was such a circus it was just uh, silly
1: and can you remember the, um, any of the emotions that were showing on the faces of these soldiers as they did this, this last parade? Yes. Um, I was so
0: impressed by them. They were absolutely stoical. They didn't show by a single flicker any sense of sadness. Now, as we said, they they, they had already been deprived of their parade step, which was a wonderful, swaggering thing to be able to do. And it showed off their ability. It showed their precision. They couldn't do that anymore. Um, they were still wearing the uniform, but they had also lost the cuff titles. We explained that in their uniforms, in the German army, uh, you have a ribbon round the left cuff of, uh, of, of your uniform, which has the name of the regiment on it. So it's always said Regiment Friedrich Engels. Those had come off as well. And so gradually they had been stripped of the kind of status that they had. Um, now the day before the last one, my dear wife wanted to be photographed with one of the soldiers. And because he was not actually on guard, he was able to talk to us. And I asked him, I said, what will happen to you? And he said that all the men under the rank of commissioned officer would simply be incorporated into the Bundeswehr. But the officers couldn't be because they all died in the world, communists and so on. They were probably just looking at a P-45 and a existence on the dole. And so I have the hugest respect for them. They marched off in very good order without a flicker of emotion. It was precisely the performance one would hope disciplined troops would put on Whatever they did when they got back to their barracks, they showed no emotion whatsoever, they showed no awareness of the crowd either. It was as if this moment in their country's history was just for them and that we didn't even exist. So I do credit them with enormous professionalism. I thought it was a splendid – I was kind of emotional watching this.
1: No, I was going going to ask that because, (laughs) I mean, were were there other people in the crowd who you – you could see that were emotional, that this was effectively the end of their country.
0: No, um, this wasn't obvious. And I think the thing that, um, I mean, I, 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 there may have been, it was dark, of course, so one couldn't really get that so much. But, um, the feeling that we had with these Germans was that the, the, the unification process had gone on so long. They were very, very weary of it. They were quite disillusioned by it. The West was fed up with them. And this wasn't a joyous occasion. The spontaneity and the joy had come on the 9th of November. After all these months, the two sides had discovered many reasons to dislike each other. For example, Westerners were sick and tired of the Eastern Berliners cluttering up shops, browsing. They weren't even buying things. they just always in your way. Uh, filling the streets with traffic, queuing up places. Uh the East Germans were sick of the West Germans showing off their wealth. And by the unification, I think there was a feeling the country was already, to use this metaphor, dead. Can we please just get this over? Can we get it buried? Can we get this over? And then we'll start to look at all the problems we now have. So I wasn't aware in the least of... um emotion of that sort i will say that that night the unification of germany was perhaps the most horrible and unpleasant crowd i've ever been in and i think that's the reason people were disillusioned they were antagonistic they were in a big crowd in a confined space and it was a tense occasion of fights going on people were drunk people were yelling uh one of my memories is being wedged under the Brandenburg gate in the middle of the and unable to go either backward or forward. And children who'd been brought along for this occasion screaming and crying. I was reminded very much of the um what was the football disaster in nineteen eighty five? Hillsborough. I was reminded very, very much of, of stories of that. It was a horrible Sinister atmosphere. It lasted about 20 minutes and then somehow the crowd was able to move again. But um, I, I, I very much recall that the euphoria had dried up by that time. We were left only with the problems of trying to get through this mm. official <laughs> celebration and get home in one piece.
1: No, that, that that's really interesting. Just going back to mm. the period around the 9th of November when the mm. wall opened, did mm. you speak to any of the border guards, or did you have the opportunity? No, to speak?
0: I didn't. Didn't have the chance to do that. The uh, November thing, the thing which is very very memorable about that, is that border guards. We remember they were largely conscripts. Certainly, the junior ones were, and they were ordered never to smile at people. They were also trained to take pictures of anyone that seemed to spend a long time looking over the wall. Um, as soon as the, uh, the the gates opened, it wasn't the Brandenburg Gate because that is surrounded by a wall, but they opened a um, gate, uh, opened space in the wall either side of it, and uh, the border guards fell over themselves to show what nice young men they are. They wouldn't stop grinning. They wanted to be photographed holding everyone's baby anything that they could do to seem warm and human and approachable they would do and they were telling jokes and all sorts of things um the change in them was extremely noticeable and uh, they were making behaving as if the entire process of, of of this opening wall was something that they'd expected for a long time and that it was just part of their job and they were kind of rather like official greeters if people were coming past they would wish them a pleasant evening and whatever um, incidentally I will say that in those days when the, uh, the that, that border opened I was staying in East Berlin and I remember walking down uh, night middle of the night down to the Brandenburg Gate which was floodlit and hundreds of people had gone strolling down just to look at it. And from the other side of the wall, I could hear a noise, a kind of tick, 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 tick going on all the time. I had no idea what it was, and I did not find out until I got home to London. It had been all the people with chisels hammering away at the western side of the wall. Nobody was doing that in the east, it was, so I couldn't identify what it was, but that, those wall peckers, I think they call them. Yes. Uh, that is what had been happening.
1: I'm interested to hear about what you saw in the rest of uh, East Germany after the, the wall opened.
0: Well, a place um, outside Berlin, not far from it, is Potsdam, which is the Windsor of Prussia, if you like. It's an immensely beautiful, Uh, small town full of baroque palaces and fake medieval castles and so on and it was a big tourist uh, Mecca even under communism even though they wanted to distance themselves from everything that that architecture represented Um, but it was a very intriguing thing to see it um, as the communists had remade it they had put Hideous, ugly buildings in the town center, and um, yet the, the souvenir shops were still full of nostalgic, monarchist, tourist souvenirs. And it was a very interesting place in the sense that it was a uh, regional headquarters for Brandenburg, I believe. Um, it had great big state institutions, uh, Courthouses and local government offices, full of obviously civil servants. It was an interesting place to get the uh, kind of snapshot of East Germany. And the same thing as in the capital queues outside restaurants, scruffiness everywhere. The thing which you really noticed wherever you were in East Germany was the unrepaired wartime damage, a sense of neglect. And another beautiful uh, tourist city, Dresden, capital of Saxony, once an independent kingdom, it had its own royal court, its own royal palace. As many of us know, it was absolutely trashed in 1945 by Allied bombing. And its signature building had been the church in the middle, Kreuzkirche, I believe it was, um, which was a single freestanding dome that had collapsed as a result of bombing and the communists had left that church plus a lot of the public buildings completely as they were in 1945. So I remember coming down the Strasse, which is the main street from the train station to the town centre. You come round a corner and suddenly there in front of you is a heap of rubble with trees growing in it. And I think the justification the communist government had given we're leaving it like that as a reminder of war and my goodness, as such, it was brutally effective, it was the most moving war memorial I've ever seen. but they also of course didn't want to rebuild uh, a number of these structures, especially if they were religious uh, buildings. But if you walked then along the what is called the Brule Terrace along the uh, bank of the river Elba. There were several um, big buildings. One, for example, was uh, an art gallery called the Albertinum, which were absolutely empty. This classical architecture with enormous windows that were open to the elements of pigeons fluttering in and out. And you could see traces of the paintwork on the walls, you could see decorative friezes, you could even see Roman numerals where pictures had been hung. Dresden had been famous for its art collection, it still is, still is. But um, to see these public buildings in the town center, it'd be like being here in Manchester, seeing the Manchester Art Gallery as a ruin, the city library as a ruin. And the point was, that the East German government had said in 1945, our priority is to build housing. All these other things can wait. And they had waited, by that time, two generations. There was still no sign they are going to be rebuilt. I will say, they were all restored fairly quickly, fairly thoroughly after unification. But in GDR times, these ruins, often showing bullet damage from World War II, were Everywhere in every city, you could not walk down a street without seeing them.
1: Yes, because uh, I think Dresden was known as Florence of the Elbe. Yes, it was, um, yeah. and was was an amazing. And my parents visited Dresden in 1987, and they particularly commented on this massive heap of rubble and how there, there was this political slant there. Yeah. Around, almost trying to tie it to the work of NATO or, you know, that, that, that oh, yes.
0: thing. Oh, um, yes. The most famous thing in Dresden really was the Zwinger, which is a pleasure garden surrounded by Baroque pavilions. And as you walk into it, there was a plaque in German saying that in no uncertain terms, this damage to the city had been done by Anglo-American Luftangriff air attack and had been restored under the auspices of Soviet government cooperation whatever um, this was very much uh, something the communists were able to uh, trade on um, the royal palace in Dresden incident was a building four or five stories high I think which had a- actual mature trees inside because was nothing but the shell and nothing but the walls and it's been a wonderful thing to see how completely those buildings have come back from the dead they have been restored very, very thoroughly. And in a sense, it's a shame. I'm very pleased they, they've they been put back. They look, if anything, too new. It will take a while for the sense of age to return to them. But with the ruins, the gaunt windows and the smoke-blackened walls that used to be, you really had a sense of the tragedy that overcame Europe in the 20th century. It was a very, very good reminder. in The same way that, of course, the medieval Coventry Cathedral has been kept as a shell uh, to show people the, the, the horrors of war.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what other cities did you visit in the East?
0: We were also in Leipzig. And we were in Weimar, which is the silly equivalent, is the kind of Stratford-on-Avon of Germany because Goethe and Schiller both lived there. Um, now these places that we visited, Leipzig was always a music city. And you mentioned incidentally that you, members of your family visited there. Dresden and Leipzig were both very heavily visited by British people in the 19th, early 20th centuries. Dresden is where couples used to go for their honeymoon German couples, British couples went there for your honeymoon. It was also a place where there were girls finishing schools so a lot of English girls were sent perhaps to live in a convent or to live in a, a, a premises there, institute there um, Leipzig was for music study, it still calls itself Musikstadt Leipzig and so again generations of nicely brought up English girls were sent there to, to learn piano uh, under some uh, illustrious professor, um, it was also a very famous book city. so it was a, a a big big cultural landmark in Germany. And the same thing, second world war damage that w- had not been repaired, and gorgeous whipped cream baroque or pseudo-baroque architecture, it was famous as the home of uh, Bach. And it's famous. He was the um, uh, organist at the St. Thomas Church in Leipzig. It's a very famous choir, rather like the Vienna Boys Choir. And we we attended the service and heard them singing. Um, Now, always, 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 it was the same. A drab city with some major fragments of beauty from former ages, but always with an overlay of utilitarian communist building and always with communist monuments. Just to remind you, in case you forgot, that this era of Soviet progress is greater than those past ages that you're looking at. Um, tourism was primitive. You didn't meet People in cafes uh, or in tourist offices who could speak very good English. Uh, their whole lives have been geared eastward toward Russia. They spoke Russian. Um, people in shops, not very polite. They're not trained in customer service.
1: And you, you have this great drawing in your sketchbook of two waitresses, I think in, in Leipzig. That was um, in Leipzig, yes. As, uh, as well. <laughs> were
0: standing gossiping among themselves instead of taking the slightest interest in the customers, who I think were people were trying to flag down their their, their attention. Um, It was uh, very, very much part of the East German scene. Shop assistant people have guaranteed jobs and you can't get them sacked for being bad at these jobs. And they absolutely could not care less whether you buy things in their shop. It makes no difference to their employability. And I I remember a story from that summer when Germans were leaving um, East Germany, East Germans were leaving their country. Um, The first ones to arrive in the West were made quite a fuss of. And a young woman uh, turned up in the city of Nuremberg and she had been a hairdresser in the East. And the city authorities gave her a place to live. Somebody fixed her up with a job in a salon. And she quit it after only two days with the words, I just couldn't believe it. People expected me to do their hair when they wanted. (laughs) So it tells you a lot, I think, about the um, economy there and about customer services and the way things were run. Nobody had any, felt any obligation to be polite, uh, whether to their own fellow citizens or to visitors. And I think that was very, very noticeable. The main thing you notice when you go through the border into East Germany, the total absence of all the landscape we take for granted, there were no giant McDonald's, M's, there were no chain stores, were none of the signage that we take for granted. You really felt you were abroad. You were out of your comfort zone, if you like. And if you wanted to ask about things, there was only a kind of 25% chance you'd meet someone that, that you could understand.
1: I mean, the the comparison I've heard is it was almost like going back to the 1930s in terms of the, the look and feel of, of the place.
0: Um, I would say 1950s because a lot of the, the architecture, of course, was post-war um, no, that is absolutely spot on, and people said that. They said, uh, I remember, I think, the National Geographic article in Berlin said, you go to the East, you'll find they still wrap sausage in brown paper instead of vacuum-sealed polythene. Uh, little girls still curtsy to adults. Well, that I never saw, and as we're saying, the manners of people tend to be worse uh, rather than better in the East, but it was precisely that at time warp and the way even the way things were displayed in shop windows the drabness of, of, of that kind of thing um, there was a very much a sense of stepping back a generation and of course that for an outsider that was often a very Pleasant thing. It looked much more like the traditional Germany that we read about in historic novels yeah, and things. The
1: Grimm's fairy tale, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> Certainly
0: uh, Thomas Mann's yeah, books. Yeah, let's yeah. say. Yeah.
1: Um, now we br- we briefly mentioned your sketchbook, mm. which is an absolutely enchanting document, oh, thank and you. and there's some amazing imagery there. And we'll share some some of the. Um, the, the drawings there and it'll, it'll just be the tip of the iceberg. Um, and it, what, what's interesting is the way that you spoke to me about the value of, of sketching something and your technique in terms of, of capturing those images.
0: Um, well, what you do, the, the, the problem is, uh, if you carry a, a camera, and bear in mind, this was before the camera was fitted in, Everyone's f- f- telephone. If you carry a camera, people are self-conscious or hostile. Um, if they see you about to take a picture, they may complain or they may move. Whatever the spontaneous moment was you were trying to capture, uh, you failed. Uh, with a sketchbook, like I have a hardcover sketchbook, it looks as if I'm just carrying a book around with me. And, I have a pencil in my hand. I can often sketch something without needing to look at it. So I can be observing it and recording it at the same time.
1: So, so just so we got this straight, because you described this to me and I was fascinated by this, <laughs> that you're looking at something, you're not looking at the sketchbook and you're yeah. just doing it almost by feel. Yes. You're, you're, you're doing that drawing.
0: Yeah. Um, it's not a good drawing. I wouldn't pretend that. What you are doing is getting the essential information down. And you do that fast, and you can then embellish it. You can work the drawing up at your leisure. You can afterwards go to a cafe or something, sit at the table, and turn it into a, a better drawing, uh, or what you hope is a better drawing. But this means that you're able to put down things that you cannot capture by photograph. It might be nighttime. It might be dark. Um, it might be that something happened so fast that you could not have got a camera out and pointed it and, and pressed the shutter, because you can rely on memory. If you have a kind of artist's memory, you 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 know how to fix a moment in your mind with all its details and then record it as fast as you can afterwards. And I think artists are trained in that. I, I have practiced that in in the but past. It's
1: almost like a you, you're you're taking a image in your head, mm. almost like your, your eyes are a camera.
0: Yes, uh, that's a very good way of putting it, precisely that. Um, very, very often, let's suppose, uh, I think there's something in the end of this book about the unification of Germany. Uh, my wife and I were in a, a jostling crowd in the middle of the night because the unification took place at midnight. Um, I can't get my hands free to draw this, even if the subject were drawable, but, but a thousand people, if you like, and the enormous Brandenburg Gate, which we are standing under. Um, you cannot record that, it would take you hours. What you can do is spontaneously sketch a few expressions or a few people, a few people's clothing, and you can then work that up over time uh, afterwards. So you're just note-taking at the time uh, that you're drawing these pictures. And you also can choose what you think is an important image. I can remember once writing, I'm sorry, this is a slight aside. I wrote to the British Army in Hong Kong saying, could I come and do some sketches of your garrison? And I said, uh, I promise you, nothing will be too uninteresting for me to draw. I've just been drawing some sailors' emptying litter bins, and if I found that interesting enough, I'm sure whatever you're doing... And I also said, uh, if your men even see what I'm doing, then I'm not doing it properly. I should be able to do this painlessly. Nobody has to stop what they're doing, and pose for me to draw. It would take me less than one minute to record whatever they're doing, and I'd just like to walk around. This was the same with Germany. We're waiting on a train station I draw the passengers. We're in a supermarket and I draw people there. Uh, certainly, if we are looking at anyone in uniform, I will record that because those costumes, people sometimes say, why do you always draw soldiers? The reason is that a man in a suit looks much the same all over the world. A uniform is the summing up of a country's history and self-image. And especially in the case of East Germany, those things are all going in, the, going to the rag and bone man any minute. We will not see their like again. So of course it was interesting to record those state uniforms that people were wearing for, for, for the last time. And one thing that I did with this book was I recorded the last day of East Germany. I think we mentioned earlier the country that's dying i have never seen that before. A country that is about to vanish off the map and and from history. Uh, I wanted to record the last day of its life. And it was a strange experience. The police in their, the Volkspolizei, people's police, in their blue uniforms, just on patrol as usual. Children going to school. It was autumn, so girls were gathering uh, leaves. Um, People going about their work. There was really a sense that this was ending with a whimper, not with a bang. And yet later that evening, when they dismounted the guard from the the, the Neuervacher for the last time, that was an absolute media frenzy and uh, pushing and shoving people want people walk past that ceremony without even noticing it for years suddenly wanted to stare at it with concentration um it was a most peculiar thing but I'm very very glad to have had the opportunity to be there and to record my persp- one one perspective on it
1: Michael I really appreciate you sharing your fantastic images you've painted with with your words and also in your sketchbook and it's been a joy to talk to you so I really appreciate you coming on Cold War Conversations
0: Well Ian thank you uh, it's been equally pleasant for me to talk to you, thank you for these questions and I love the way we've had just a spontaneous unscripted go where you like conversation about this I would love to talk to you about Anytime feel like
1: it. Well, I think, we, yeah, <laughs> we, we may do some follow ups, and that's the way we like it. We like it to just be a, a friendly chat, and uh, it's, it's, certainly it, it's been amazing. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. All right. Bye. My pleasure. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. And we have further photos, videos, and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.